I V M. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheeta. Welcome to Paperback by the Open Library Project. We have as our guest today Mrs. Anjali Raina, Executive Director at Harvard Business School. In this episode, we deep dive into the book Play to Win by Larry Wilson. In the second half, we also discuss how will you measure your life by Clayton Christensen, The Opposable Mind by Roger Martin, Imagining India by Nandan Nilekani, and Trust by Tarun Khanna. Our conversation with Mrs. Raina reflects on timeless concepts, narrating how life is often played to not lose rather than to win. The paradox of meaningful relationships, integrative thinking, reimagining India, and building trust in existing business structures. Rethinking success. Being successful has traditionally been the payoff of any game. Having the trappings of success is how you know you've won. And yet, as most of us know, simply being successful, even though we obsess over it, is only one dimension of what it is to be a human being. A number of years ago, I held a dinner for some of the top performing second-year salespeople in the insurance industry. After an hour or so of shop talk, I asked how they were feeling about their success. Silence. Then they all looked around the room at each other, and a few of the more outspoken began to speak. They were terrified. They said, "The more successful they became, the more pressure they felt to be even more successful." One of the salespeople said she felt like she was chasing a rabbit. No matter how fast she ran, the rabbit kept getting farther and farther away. It made her feel desperate. People claim they want to be successful because they'll have financial security and be able to buy the things they want. If you ask them why do you want financial security, what will you get if you buy the things you want? They'll probably answer. I'll feel the way I want to feel. I'll feel happier, more emotionally secure, and so on. What we really want, it seems, is happiness or emotional security. What we believe is that we can get that feeling by becoming successful, and advertising reinforces this belief every waking minute of our lives. It is as if someone sat us down at the beginning of our careers and whispered the magic word "success." What we thought we heard was that life was about being successful above all else. If we were successful, we would get the feelings we were after—fulfillment, happiness, and emotional security. But we misunderstood. Success is fine; making money is usually a good thing. But the truth that we all discover sooner or later—that there is no direct and automatic correlation between success and the feelings of joy, happiness, and emotional security that we crave. Dr. Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist and author of *Man's Search for Meaning*, who spent three years in Nazi concentration camps. Explain this. He drew a line on the blackboard that he labeled failure, on one end and success on the other. He said that much of our lives are spent working hard to be successful. Success is primarily defined by external measures: how much money you make, your rank in the company, and the respect according accorded you by your peers. Being successful seemingly always involves being measured against others. Frankel believed that there is a wholly separate dimension. Commonly left out of our thinking and planning, one that is critical to the health and happiness of human beings. He drew a vertical line across the horizontal line and called it the depression fulfillment line. Fulfillment is the deeply felt sense that your life is full, whole, complete, that you have expanded to fill up your potential. Fulfillment is knowing that if you died tomorrow, your life would have meant something, 
that it was going in the right direction and you were making a difference. Fulfillment, unlike success, is largely defined by internal measures, by how we feel about what we're doing or have done. Thank you, Anjali Rana. That was an excerpt from the book Play to Win by Larry Wilson. Welcome to Paperback by the Open Library Project. I'm your co-host Satyajit, otherwise known as Onion Knight in most food circles. I'm hosting the podcast with my co-founder at the Open Library Project, Racheta Sharma. Hi guys, my name is Racheta and I'm an ex-banker who has left my banking profession to follow my passion and run libraries across the world. The Open Library Project is a non-fiction book library service offered to businesses on a subscription basis. We're trying to move away from the run-of-the-mill library concept and setting up rotational and locational curated libraries at co-working spaces, corporates and business incubators. The idea here is to create value, build a knowledge community and encourage a growth mindset amongst our members. Today we have with us on the show Anjali Rena, Executive Director of Harvard Business School. Welcome to the show, ma'am. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here, ma'am. Thank you for inviting me. That excerpt was truly amazing and uh, we'll get into more details. I actually wanted to start with asking you about the... Uh, so the book starts with an example which is on the story of cattle and how they do not cross over a painted cattle guard. So uh, can you tell us how this theme is related to the book or, you know, what inspires you and influences you from this? So the cattle that Larry Wilson refers to in this book, Play to Win, grazed on ranges in West Texas. The ranges were so large that the cattle owners drove in pickup trucks to cover the range. And the cattle were fenced into different fields. It was uneconomical to build gates across the roads between one field and the other. Right. So the cattle owners would dig a ditch across the road and put metal bars across the ditch. The cattle couldn't cross the metal bars and stayed fenced into the field. After some time, the cattle owners stopped digging ditches. They just painted stripes on the ground and the painted stripes were enough to prevent the cattle from crossing to a different greener field. Until one day, a smart cow examined the painted stripes discovered it was just paint and led the herd to lush green grass on the other side of the fence. So this tale is maybe just a tale, but it illustrates that often the barriers that prevent us from moving ahead are imaginary, just made up. If we can stop, examine the made up barrier, the imaginary barrier and challenge it, we can choose to cross over into a world of lush green possibility. And this is actually the core concept of the book, Play to Win by Larry and Hirsch Wilson. This book helped me to understand that in the game of life, to be both successful and fulfilled, we need to play to win. The fear of failure, the fear of looking bad often makes us play the game of not to lose. Right. Right. So to avoid risk, we only do what we are good at, where we know we will succeed. The pity is that our family, our friends, our colleagues often reinforce this thinking. And so we don't take the risks that would enable us to challenge ourselves, build our skills and grow into our full potential. We remain limited. This game of play not to lose may lead to success in material terms and achievement. I've always been an achievement-oriented person. And I know that hard work, persistent commitment enables you to pass exams, get sales results, achieve success in the way it's generally measured in the world. Right. But many people I know who play this game are successful, but they aren't happy and fulfilled. They're divorced, they don't have good relationships, they're mm -hmm. estranged from their parents, they're estranged from their children. And this book explains that there's one dimension which is failure and success, but there's also another dimension which is fulfillment and depression. Right. And... The, so it has to be a balance of all of those. Actually, if you want to play in the 
quadrant of fulfillment and success then you lead an abundant life a full life right so that's the only quadrant to play in right but for that you have to pursue those efforts which lead to success and also those efforts which lead to fulfillment and mm. those efforts which lead to fulfillment are not hard work persistence and commitment which is a success quadrant right but fulfillment is really about finding work that's meaningful that's right. creative that you know that really engages you it's also about having loving and meaningful relationships right. right and it's also about thinking about the legacy that you want to leave behind and what is going to outlast you yeah and it's it's also very important to think out of the box because if you really want to grow personally and professionally there are times that you have to take risks and do things which are not in your comfort zone and like the book uh, you know suggests that if you're going to keep doing things that you're good at you're never going to know if you can or cannot do you know something beyond that zone so yeah it's truly uh, an inspiring thought that you know you should be able to balance your um fulfillment and success quadrants yeah and to actually be able to do that what was really interesting for me was the whole concept of the fact that you can think it yeah right so the concept of thinking and the idea that thought is so important yeah. that it can lead you to lead this meaningful life that you can thrive you can be happy and you can be successful uh was fascinating for me that's really what inspired me to go deep into this so i talked about the imaginary cattle line so you know yeah. some stuff is just imagined that i am not good at speaking i'm not good at uh-huh. writing i'm not good at mathematics and you know it might be somebody who tells you that that's an imaginary thing i always thought i wasn't good at maths yeah. until somebody in the bank where i was working pointed out to me that i was great at maths yeah. i was able to look at a line of figures and cast it so it, sometimes it takes an outsider to tell to you tell that you're imagining that this. you're good at something that you may have thought perceived that you're that not that you're not at, so yeah. that you're imagining a barrier in your own heart which you actually and so because of the fear of failure you don't want to not be good at something so you rather not that do might it. hold you back yeah. other times you make stuff up yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know i live in alibag mm-hmm. and there are lots of snakes there right and you know it amazes me that when i see a snake i sort of run screaming away from the snake yeah but when the snake catcher comes he or she will look at that snake and say oh you know this is just an ordinary grass snake don't be worried leave it there right. another guy will come and say this is a rat snake you know we should leave these rat snakes around because they eat the eat rats, the rats. Yeah. and then another guy the same snake catcher may say oh no this is a cobra or this is a crate and this is very poisonous mm-hmm. but they don't kill it they yeah. pick it up and release it into the jungle so that it survives because they say even that has a place in the ecosystem right. yeah. and the snake catcher's approach and my approach are different only because our experience of snakes our knowledge of snakes is different so yeah, i right. make stuff up right. every snake is poisonous this is going to bite me this is going to do this and making stuff up is one of the ways in which people think Yeah. which is dis- self destructive okay right so we need to be able to understand and identify when we're making stuff up and that means when we hear these words oh my god this case snake is going to bite me this is should we should be frightened of snakes when we hear that word should we know we're making stuff up okay yeah. and we should stop and we should challenge our thinking so this is the interpretation right. yeah. you know up what people have told us what we've read what we've heard these preconceived notions or interpretations of an event or an animal or a human being mm-hmm. yeah. you know somebody doesn't say good morning to you mm-hmm. our preconceived notion is that person so rude right. or if that's your boss you say oh my god the person doesn't like me anymore the person's you know not liking my job i didn't do that project that person is going to sack me i'm going to lose my job then i'm going to be out on the road so from this interpretation of what should be and how somebody should behave we also start catastrophizing yeah. which is another way of thinking which we should avoid right so imaginary stuff 
making stuff up and then catastrophizing, making things out to be much worse than they, are, than they actually are, is also what happens. And if we can break these, if we understand and recognizes these patterns of thinking and we can stop, we can challenge these and we can choose how to interpret this, we can manage our emotions and our feelings much better. And that leads to the game of play to win rather than play to lose. Okay. Because instead yeah. of being, you know, thinking, oh, my God, this is going to happen. This is something. This is risky. This is not good. This is not going to be good for me. Right. Yeah. We realize that that's not actually the way to think. This is just something that happened. It doesn't really, you know, the person may not have said good morning because the person was thinking about something else. Yeah. May not have seen me. And so next time we will say good morning right. rather right. than not. If we don't, that person next time may think we're rude. Yeah. And a perfectly good relationship may actually go south. Right. So that's how an example of unrealistic thinking can rule, actually like ruin, ruin things. Right, right. Can right. ruin things. So, ma'am, tell us who would you recommend this book to? And uh, do you often reread the book? Do you think that it gives you a different perspective at different times in your life? I would recommend this book to everybody because it is really about, it's not necessarily only for a professional or a working person, mm -hmm. it actually applies to any living human being. Because it teaches you how to lead an abundant and happy life and a successful life, whatever you do. Uh, and it, it teaches you the foundation of thinking and how to talk to yourself in a way that is positive and encouraging. Right. I love this book. And you can see by the fact that it is marked with so many post-its <laughs> and lines and colors that yeah. it's a book that I read and reread. Because unfortunately, falling into unproductive ways of thinking is a human trait. Right. Right. We are meaning-making machines. You know, people call us human beings. We're actually meaning-making machines. So we make meaning okay. out of nothing. We make stories. We yeah. make up stories. So to so we should make positive meaning is uh, something we should focus on. I mean, we should just focus on the reality. On the reality. Okay. You know, there's traffic. Right. It doesn't mean that the world is against you. Right. It doesn't mean that if you reach late, your boss is going to sack you. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, you know, the girl whom you're having a date with is going to run going away to and not marry yeah. you. Yeah. It's just there's traffic. Right. That's right. it. So that ability to just look at it, take a deep breath and focus on something else, focus on something more productive. That's what thinking is about. So that's a very minor example. But you can use it in much more positive ways to actually make your work and your life better. Right. And that's why this book is so fascinating because I've given you a very superficial level. Uh -huh. But if you read about how you should look at results, how you should look at what to choose, what are the productive ways of thinking, which is what the book goes into yeah. and talks about all the strategies for playing to win, uh, your life can become much happier. For example, you know, I'm now 60 years old. I just celebrated my 60th birthday. And... Uh, Unfortunately, I started thinking that, oh, you know, nobody cares for me and nobody's making a fuss of my birthday, etc. Mm -hmm. And actually they were, you know, my sister flew in from Delhi. My daughter had made all sorts of special arrangements. My colleagues had thrown the most fabulous party. And so all that negative, miserable thinking that I'm unloved and uncared for was making stuff up. Right. Yeah. And then yesterday, my daughter actually at dinner reminded me that even last year we had had a wonderful birthday. Okay. And, uh, you know, we had had a great celebration. We had gone to the A.R. Rahman concert and we had gone to Dome and we'd had a lunch with the family and so on. And I thought to myself that, you know, I need to go back and read this book again because I am making stuff up. <laughs> so it's a lot about streamlining your thoughts. And 
recognizing realities recognizing reality and recognizing that you're loved and loving people and you're surrounded by these people whereas it was just making me unhappy for nothing that makes you unproductive you then focus your energies on unproductive things you don't focus on your work you don't focus on building stuff so that's how it pulls you down that's why controlling your emotions through thinking Mm -hmm. is what this book is about great on that note we're going to take a short break we'll be back after this Welcome back to the show. We are still with Anjali Raina from Harvard Business School. So the next book we are going to be discussing on the podcast is How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. So ma'am, tell us about this book. What This is again uh, similar to uh, what we were what speaking, we were speaking about, about, about Plato and, and this book I think talks about um, how to measure the different metrics of your life as compared to the metrics of your business so what uh, what stood out for you what did you like about this book you're absolutely right it was you know when you asked me about my five favorite books i realized that there's a theme which runs through it uh-huh. yeah. and this book by professor clayton christensen on how will you measure your life actually talks about the quadrant of fulfillment okay what's fascinating for me however as a business person as a professional as somebody who studies business researches business is that clayton has applied the principles of business success to the principles of, of life. Okay. And that analogy and that implication, that parallel uh-huh. is just fascinating to me. So Clayton talks about the fact that businesses which succeed and which outlive their founders are businesses which have a sense of purpose. Okay. There's some businesses which you know are very created very clearly to make the founder rich. Right. Yeah. And those businesses normally don't last outlive the founder may not even live as long as a founder right. they die before right. you know the founder right. but f- uh, businesses which have survived for many years like arvind eye hospital for example which mm-hmm. is an eye hospital in india which has got the largest number of eye surgeries uh, that people have seen com- hospitals like that have a sense of purpose right companies like that have a sense of purpose and when they have that sense of purpose and meaning they tend to outlive their founders so what clayton says is just like companies need to have a purpose even you as mm-hmm. a human being need, need to, to define purpose. your purpose okay now of course that goes back to thinking because defining purpose understanding the purpose of your life doesn't just come to you it takes right. deep reflection it takes deep thinking uh, it takes time it takes effort yeah and so to a certain extent it's related to the book on play to win it's also related to the quadrant of fulfillment that okay. what makes you lead a fulfilled life yeah. Clayton goes on to talk about the fact that it's not just purpose you also need to have commitment and you need to have metrics right. how will you measure it right you know that's also an interesting concept yeah absolutely in fact uh, he talks about the paradox which i spoke to you about earlier as well and i absolutely you know love that thought process that you know the most important relationships in our life are the ones which require most attention and dedication but we somehow always assume that they don't because you know there is somebody to support us or somebody to always understand but i guess if we see the long term purpose of that or the fulfillment that that relationship would give us um we'd be probably a little more careful or a little more attentive i would say Yes and you know uh, Rachita you hit on something very important because uh, what happens in life is that we tend to chase short term wins mm-hmm. and as an achievement oriented person you know i know that if i study hard for an exam and i get good results i'll get to see straight away if yeah. i don't get the good results i know that maybe i have to go back and study in a different way or learn something else and then i'll get good results right. but yeah. i can measure it immediately if right. i'm at work 
I can see that if I put in hard work and I am dedicated and committed, I'll probably, you know, get, get a better jobs, or, yeah, get yeah. a promotion, get a you know higher salary and so on. But if I spend an hour or two with my mom or with my husband or with my daughter or my sister, uh, if every evening, the results of that may not actually show for many years. Right? Yeah. And even if I spend that time with my uh, daughter every year, every day when she's small, I mean, it's still no guarantee that the relationship at the end of it will be a good one. Yeah. Right. So because of that uncertainty, because of that lack of measurability, yeah. people tend to focus on the short term wins. You can't blame them because right. that is something you can see. It's tangible. It's easily measurable also. It's easily mean, measurable. Yeah, so is, we need to spend time with our... We need to treat these these relationships also as a job. Right. Yeah. And that we need to invest that time in them. thought by the author. I really, actually really like it. And now that, you know, we've been talking about uh, thinking so much, there's also a book that you recommended, The Opposable Mind, which talks about integrative thinking. So, uh, you know, could you give us more detail about, you know, what the book is about and what is the lesson that we can derive from the book? So this book is also fascinating. It's by Roger Martin. Yeah. And uh, The Opposable Mind is actually about winning through integrative thinking. Okay. So the it's defined, this whole concept of integrative thinking is defined as the concept of being able to hold two opposing thoughts in your mind at the same time. So... And then you you create a synthesis that contains elements of both, but actually improves on each. Okay. So okay. it's a difficult concept in a way, and maybe I'm not explaining it very well. But another way of thinking about it is constructive thinking. You know, mm. we're used to in school thinking about a debate right. where yeah. you tear somebody else down. Right. So that's called critical thinking. We're also used to advertising where, uh -huh. you know, somebody blue skies and creates an advertisement out of nothing, mm -hmm. yeah. which is creative. Right. But the ability to actually bring together what you're saying and what you're saying and to build on it. And you may be arguing that we should be increasing sales and you may be arguing that we should be cutting costs. Right. But the person who can bring together increasing sales and cutting costs, which are two opposing thoughts, because how can you cut costs if you're increasing sales? Exactly. You need to have more people, yeah, etc. Yeah. But somebody uh -huh. who can bring these two opposing thoughts together and craft a solution out of it, that person has integrative thinking. Okay. Great. It's difficult. Yeah. That's, a very, that's yeah. a very interesting concept. It seems really difficult to execute also. I mean, uh, to hold opposing thoughts. It's basically coming to a consensus uh, with opposing thoughts you know like yes. I, I run a few businesses so i know how difficult increasing sales and cutting costs at the same time is so absolutely but the person who can do it is likely to have a successful business right and that's why i love the harvard business school uh -huh. and the classroom pedagogy uh -huh. because in our classrooms this is exactly what is taught okay the professor first to be able to do this uh -huh. you need to be able to hear each other yeah. right I, I think, yeah, that will be a very important factor to be able to be, to be open to even listening to someone else's opposing thought. Yeah, To be able to... And Except you need to be, the critical argument that's been presented yeah, by the opposing You need person. to be able to build on that idea. Right. So first, I need to be able to hear that you're saying increase sales. Mm -hmm. yeah. Satyajit needs to hear Racheta saying that we need to cut costs. Yeah. And then you need to hear somebody else saying we can do both. Right. Yeah. And this involves not cutting down Satyajit's point or not cutting down Racheta's point, but actually listening to it and then building on it. And that's what happens in the classroom. Our Harvard Business School students do almost 400 case studies wow. where they have 
these type of dilemmas right. they have these type yeah. of arguments about which is the right choice to take okay so right in the beginning remember in the first book i said we need to do stop challenge choose yes. right. so here you're doing a stop challenge okay so this guy is saying increase costs mm. or decrease costs or this guy is saying increase sales or decrease sales so let's think about it let's challenge it do we really need to but we also need to choose yeah whether we should be increasing sales or decreasing sales right and why we need to do it so yeah. i'm not allowed to criticize your thought okay unless i also have give the reason why and i'm able to give another alternative okay. so i can't just say no we can't increase sales yeah, okay. i have to give an alternative be there has to be something that idea of being able to build on the other person's idea okay rather than just cutting it down yeah is a very important skill which is built in the classroom by the pedagogical method of the case discussion where the professor facilitates this and that's okay. why you tend to see that these students are so good because this concept of integrative thinking is built into the pedagogy that's wow. beautiful it's fascinating yeah. <laughs> i already want to go to howard <laughs> or read the book read the yes, book definitely <laughs> yes most definitely the next book we're moving on to is imagining india by nandan nilikani uh he's of course the co-founder of infosys and uh, he's also the father of the ui the uidai uidai aadhar card system so ma'am what about this book would you suggest to our reader why would someone read this uh, so, read this book of course i'm a you know i'm a great admirer of nandan nilekani's and i've read this book from cover to cover and that's that's because this book actually aligns with my life's purpose Okay. Okay. In the sense that I'm very patriotic. I love my country. Mm-hmm. India means a lot to me. And if I can do something to help our country transform, our citizens do better, our Indians gain a meaningful life mm-hmm. and reach their potential, it would make me very happy. And this book actually of Nandan's showed me in a in a very concise way. It's not a small book. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. quite a fat book. It's mm-hmm. got something like uh, 500 pages, I think, okay. a little over 500 pages. But in a very concise way, it actually takes all the big challenges that are confronting our country, and thinks about the possibilities. You know, you have lots of books which talk about what are the problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what are the accelerators? What are the right. possibilities? What are the solutions? Yeah. This book talks about that. Okay. he analyzes nandan analyzes the issues like in the chapter on education mm-hmm. he talks about the issues in our education system and why they occurred he doesn't just say this is bad etc etc right. yeah. he talks about the evolution and how it came to be like this okay and then he talks about what it could be okay what could be possible solutions to the uh, yeah and what even opportunities even right? yeah in- what the education system could look like right yeah right not necessarily a solution but he's saying this is what it could look like this is the reason why it's like this and if it was like this this is how okay our country could transform i'm just giving it to you in a pot shot the book is very deep very well researched and i'm giving you a very small example but he's covered you know many many uh, chapters including schools including cities including jobs including livelihoods including institutions so he's actually taken our country from end to end and he's looked at it in a very deep analytical way okay and uh it, i i saw this as a beacon of hope okay and it inspired me to actually look at many many of these things in my job i am a researcher mm-hmm. we write business school case studies and we have the opportunity actually to examine many of the issues that nandan uh, identified and we have the opportunity to look at business models that have 
solved some of these. Okay. Wow. So oh, wow. this book actually helped me to understand which are the areas we could focus on. And yeah. you mentioned UIDAI. We actually did a case study on Aadhaar. Okay. Nandan also, you know, is the architect of the Aadhaar, which means foundation, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's given an identity to 1.2 billion Indians. Right. And when it came out, we, you know, we wrote the case study on it, and there was a lot of questioning as to whether this would succeed. So it's been fascinating for my colleague Rashna Chola and my professor Tarun Khanna mm-hmm. uh, and me to see how actually. the system has moved on it has become something that everybody has got an id now and it's yeah. been used in many ways which people had not imagined it's also very different from anywhere in the world because everywhere in the world these type of systems are owned by the uh, by in, in individual you know private practice uh, right. like google yeah. or yeah. apple or something or in china it's owned by the state right. yeah. but here we have this which has been created by the state but private practitioners can create a an Uh, an application on top of that that gives us hope for our country right. so this is an example of how nandan has inspired uh, me to think differently about the challenges uh, in our country and that's why i find his book so fascinating even now when i want to go back and understand a problem i go back and read the chapter on the analysis of how we evolved here okay it sounds very interesting for anyone doing business in our country you know we can probably look at uh, so many possibilities that it goes into the history well researched history so that it talks to the cause of the problem and that what may be the possible solution it's again so, the same thought right that you don't try and you'll never know so right, yes yeah. right, right all the books are really well intertwined yeah. yeah so the last book we are moving on to is trust by uh, professor tarun khanna who's also a professor at harvard business school so reading this book was absolutely fascinating for me because while reading it uh, as an indian entrepreneur i recognized that there were what he talks about is the differences in a developed world and a developing uh, world so i i definitely saw a lot of uh, the missing institutions that are there and i felt them too uh, so ma'am what 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 about this book stood out for you so you know i'm a great admirer of professor tarun khanna's and i love all his books mm. uh this one actually resonated with me because it's extremely readable yeah it's um you know it has got almost 160 pages uh but the chapters just flow yeah and it is written in a very fabulous narrative style with stories about successful and unsuccessful entrepreneurs from around the world So, okay. for example, Professor Khanna has spoken about Amul, mm-hmm. the dairy here, but he's also spoken about a Chinese dairy, and he's contrasted the two stories and uh, how one has succeeded, what has made one go- do so well, the model, the different business model that somebody else followed. So, the application of global perspective, global stories, global learnings. and the illustration of indian stories and indian perspectives the juxtaposition mm-hmm. yes. of this i find fascinating because it shows you that there's no right way right. one way only one way to get somewhere there can be different ways yeah. in which you can reach a successful conclusion and right. this would actually be really helpful for uh, entrepreneurs because i feel that a lot of times we feel a certain thing is working out in another country so it may even work in india but maybe you just don't have the market for it or you know what is doing really well there would not be doing as well here yeah absolutely and yeah. another reason why this is so useful for entrepreneurs in india especially is because professor khanna talks about the fact that you need to have entrepreneurs who succeed in emerging markets actually need to create a web of trust because there's so many things that are missing right. in our country yeah. right 
in emerging markets, not just in India, but in all emerging markets, there's so many things that are missing, that when you create a web of trust, you are able to actually get things done yeah. in a way which compensates for the lack for the of other stuff, for the lack okay. of the missing institutions. Like you mentioned that the legal system right. is sometimes slow in an emerging market. Yeah. So yeah. if you trust the person you're dealing with yeah. uh, and that person trusts you, then maybe the legal paperwork is not that important right. because of that web of trust that has been created. And this also goes back to the concept of building relationships, thinking about it and investing in uh, working on people-to-people interactions yeah. and not just transactional interactions. So right. that, right. in a way, this book uh, with its concept of trust mm-hmm. and the importance of trust in emerging markets for entrepreneurs uh, helps us to understand that. This. this book also gives me hope because we are so short of jobs in India uh, that the only way we can actually provide livelihoods is by creating many, many entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs actually generate jobs. Right. Yeah. And this book gives me hope because it shows that cre- investing in building trust doesn't really require capital. It requires only human capital. It doesn't yeah. require financial capital. Right. right. So one can actually, if one invests in that, entrepreneurs can be successful. Yeah, even that's in something markets. which is in our control. Which I mean, the capital control. may not, yeah. but yeah. 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 our human relations definitely are. So. Definitely. So, ma'am, could you also recommend uh, some other books written by Indian Harvard professors which would, you know, maybe talk about a different perspective in business? So, there are different, uh, there are three professors whose books I really adore. Uh, One is uh, Bharat Anand, who's written a book called The Content Trap. Then there's uh, Professor Sunil Gupta, who's written a book on driving digital strategy. And then, of course, my favorite, Ranjay Gulati. Uh, whose book is on reorganizing for resilience. All right. Uh, these three books are useful reading for any entrepreneur. Great. Yeah, and very relevant, I guess, in our times now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On that note, we're going to end the podcast with a short poem from uh, Anjali Ma'am. Actually, this is not a poem by me, but it's a poem which has, which is one Red of my favorites. <laughs> yes, it's a poem by a gentleman called Ralph Waldo Emerson. Right. Oh. And it, the, the name of the poem is To Have Succeeded. Okay. So you can see that it resonates with, with the, the theme, theme of, of the, the other books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, To laugh often and love much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the approbation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to give oneself, to leave the world a little better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or redeemed social condition, to have played and laughed with enthusiasm and sung with exaltation, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. This is the poem which we have uh, put up in office also by the way so yeah, yeah I'm very excited that <laughs> you're, you're very excited <laughs> <laughs> thank you Anjali Rena for being with us today and sharing your insights on these books we look forward to having you on the show again and a big thank you to all our listeners you can follow the Open Library Project on LinkedIn Instagram and Facebook for latest updates on our events and stay tuned for the next paperback podcast on IVM Podcasts Happy reading. You can follow IVM Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at IVM Podcasts.